0: have I got a smashing guest for you today. I'm very excited. He lives in California. He's a wonderful musician and composer. He's also really funny. And he was in a little band called The Police. He is the drummer, Stuart Copeland. And just so you know, some of his language is very um, flowery, so to speak, and a bit exuberant. So um, if you take offense in strong language, um, maybe you should. Shouldn't listen, but um he's brilliant. Hope you enjoy. Stuart hello, how are you?
1: Hello, Twiggy. <laughs> it's a long time since we last met at someone's I, I don't know whose wedding it was, but there we were nattering <laughs> away while some young people were getting wed.
0: I still I was trying to think where it was. I can't, but it was a long time ago. It was ago. The Eve's. Oh, Oh, it might be. One of the kids. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It wasn't Sharon. I'm and sure friend. they've
1: all got children by now.
0: Uh one has. A little baby boy. Really? Yeah. Jack has what got you know? Jack has got a little baby boy.
1: Excellent. Okay.
0: Anyway, you are in California, eh, right?
1: Yeah, I'm in California where the sun is shining. And I hate uh where you. are you? In England?
0: It's bloody freezing. The weather has changed. Excellent. It's pouring Excellent. with rain. Excellent. And you're in sunny California. And,
1: and you probably haven't seen the sun in two months. I lived in England for 20 years. So that's why I am enjoying your discomfort uh, so <laughs> profoundly. Because- the only
0: good thing about it, I can get all my lovely woolly jumpers and my furry boots out. I love, I love all the clothes that yeah. you can wear in the winter, but, but well, I do miss...
1: Fiona calls it hat weather.
0: Yes, it is. Yeah, because your wife... She can for, wear her hats. For people who don't know, your, your wife is called Fiona and she's English, correct?
1: Yes, 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 I married up.
0: <laughs> but aren't you, your mum, I read in your biog, it was Scottish.
1: That's right. So you uh, are And half, my father's family.
0: You are half British, half
1: teabag. Yeah. <laughs> And I spent 20 years there, so I probably got more teabag in me than I care to admit. <laughs> but, I, I, you know, I go to Scotland because my father's family, the Copelands apparently, are from Scotland. Oh, are
0: Yeah, oh, but when I go
1: up to Edinburgh or Glasgow, you know, or, or Glasgow, the people don't look like me. But then when <laughs> I go over to Norway, they do look like me.
0: Oh, yes. And my so first I can...
1: thought is, the first thought is, let's go hit Scotland. <laughs>
0: Have have you ever done, you know, DNA and all that? You know, you can send it and yeah. Because yeah, maybe yeah, you are, yeah, yeah. maybe you're Scandinavian.
1: Well, I'm 99.8% Northern European. Oh, well, there you go. How can I possibly be so funky? <laughs> it's not natural.
0: But your mum, whereabouts in Scotland was your mum
1: born? Leith.
0: Oh, in Leith, and, okay. But,
1: yeah. But she met my daddy during the war, who was a, an intelligence. She was an intelligence as well. She was an SOE, which is these ladies who analysed all the uh, German communications oh, wow. and all the train times, and she was one of the ladies who figured out the programme of where to bomb and when um, and which train lines to attack.
0: Oh, wow. Is that what they did at Bletchley Park, or was that different? That's right. Oh, that's, was she was she, there? was she there?
1: Yes, yes, yes. Oh, my um, goodness. After the war, she discovered archaeology and had four kids. Uh, my daddy continued on as a spy uh, with the OSS, <laughs> which became the CIA.
0: I was going to ask you, because I read that your dad, he helped form the CIA.
1: He was there in the beginning, yes. He was one of the founding members of this of this illustrious organisation.
0: When you grew up, you knew he was with the CIA, but did no. he? Did he? Oh, you didn't?
1: No, 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 no. It was all uh, My brother did come... Oh yeah, my brother did come home from school one day and said, uh-huh. dad, are you a spy? <gasps> to which our father responded. And as you can imagine, this is a family legend. He responded, who wants to know? <laughs> but then again, in, in, in Beirut, um, in Beirut, Lebanon at that time, it was sort of um, the nexus of all intrigue in the Middle East. And everybody's daddy was a spy, isn't yours?
0: No, my dad wasn't.
1: I'm afraid. <laughs> no. She had...
0: So, were you living in Beirut then?
1: Yes, um, I left America when I was two months old, mm-hmm. um, and went to my daddy was away on business installing a dictator, name of Gamal Abdel Nasser, uh, in Egypt. Yeah. Uh, who actually turned out to be a very benign dictator and did a lot of really good work for you know for his country, and uh, we moved. So I was sent off, packed off to Cairo at the age of two months. And from there to Beirut, Lebanon, until I was a teenager, where I was sent off to darkest Somerset boarding school, <laughs>
0: Oh. Uh,
1: and then ended up as a uh, as a uh, angry young man in London. Um, and basically, I lived in England for twenty years.
0: But when you were in, so you went to your primary school was in Beirut.
1: Yeah, elementary school. We call it the American Community School.
0: I mean, you must have really missed Beirut when they shipped you off to wet cold england yeah
1: well yes and no uh england had television and uh what i noticed first of all was that half my vocabulary wasn't english you know in england in beirut everyone spoke araba franglaise which is a combination of arabic french and english and so i didn't even realize that half the words that i was using were not english they were arabic wow Uh, that took a minute to get around
0: that's amazing so did you how many you've how many brothers and sisters did you have?
1: I had two brothers and one sister.
0: Okay, and did they all go to school in Beirut?
1: Uh, yes, I was the youngest. Oh, okay. Um, and by the time I went off the board, they had all grown up and out.
0: Oh, okay. Um,
1: and so I was the last one down in Somerset.
0: In M- M- Millfield, was it Millfield? Millfield. Yeah, Millfield, that, that's yeah. A, quite a famous Within school. Within sight of
1: Glastonbury Tor.
0: Oh, very nice, yeah
1: and now, and I never played the Glastonbury Festival, and I understand that the Glastonbury Festival actually isn't in Glastonbury, which is a travesty no um, it's not but but I, but I know that region very well.
0: It's beautiful actually, yeah. it is gorgeous, so why why haven't you got a kind of English Frenchy Arabic-y accent? you've got a very American accent.
1: I work on it <laughs> <laughs>
0: But you went to... Well,
1: nothing, there, there's no accent more annoying than that transatlantic kind of <laughs> half-English, half-American. So all my life I've been American. God damn it, I'm American. You're American, i proud school, of it. I'm American. <laughs> well, because in those days, America was the shining light on the hill. Yeah, it was and, um, and in Beirut, in the Middle East in that time, believe it or not, America was very highly regarded. All those other imperial monsters, such as England, great, great Britain, Britain. Uh, uh, were all, were all um, uh, held in great suspicion by the um, what was then called the Third World, which just meant that they weren't on our side or their side, they were on their own side. They regarded the previous empires with deep suspicion, but the Americans were fresh and new and were building hospitals and universities and good stuff. Um, and didn't have any kind of baggage or past, of course, my father, with his skullduggery, was inventing some new baggage uh, <laughs> which we are now paying the cost of today
0: oh really did he te- did he tell you anything about what was
1: what he was doing, or did you think he was eventually oh he did eventually he I was in college uh, and in, in America his, right
0: you went to college in, in, America. in America yeah by, okay. by this
1: time i'm in, I'm in California. And uh, he wrote a book, and on the liner notes of my daddy's book, Miles Copeland, CIA spy. Da 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 da. Oh wow! You, I, you know, I sort of already knew that, but like I was saying earlier, everybody's daddy is a spy in Beirut. <laughs> uh, and so it wasn't. And by the way, one of my best friends in in Beirut was an English kid named Harry Philby. <gasps> His daddy was a spy. He
0: was a spy. Oh, my goodness. And uh, one
1: day, his his father disappeared. And there was a big hoo-ha all over, you know, social Beirut. Yeah. Uh, the English-speaking society of Beirut. It was a big hoo-ha. Us children didn't really know what it was about. I was probably 14, 15 at the time. And Harry, their family stayed at our house. We were just outside of town. And, um, and were holed up there. we were parallel families. we kind of had similarly aged children, and uh, Kim Phil me and my dad were best buddies. Wow um, and he was absolutely devastated when he turned into a uh, it turned out he was a double agent. Yeah. and in later years, I tried to find Harry, but he doesn't exist on the Google machine, and I just can't find him. Eventually it turns yeah. out he has a niece um, who is a journalist, uh-huh. and I found her. And made a connection with her, um, and I was so pleased to make the connection that I wrote a sort of a jocular letter saying, gosh, uh, oh dear, what a, our scoundrel fathers, uh, you know, laugh, laugh, What a forgetting entirely, most insensitive that, of course, it's a big laugh on our side. My father wasn't a double agent. The Philby family must have been utterly destroyed of by what their father did i mean you know harry must have been kicked out of his boarding school and back in england uh the whole family you know and their sense of humor on this topic is probably constrained
0: so when did you so there's no musicians in that part of your family
1: Oh, yeah, well, my so father was a musician. He oh, was, he
0: was? Oh, okay.
1: He was a jazz musician.
0: Because usually when because ah. when I talk to people, it's amazing how, especially if they're musicians or singers, that somewhere down the line there is somebody who did it even as an amateur. There's somebody
1: in the fuel yeah. supply, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, in my case, it was my father, who was a jazz musician before the war, and I still got his trumpet. I'm looking at it right over there. Mm. Um,
0: How and,
1: lovely. Uh, I was the fourth child and the first three went by and he put music instruments into their hands, which didn't work until I came along uh, and mostly broke them all, but at least I was interested in them. Um, and uh, it stuck. I mean, the music bug I just, you know, it just stuck and I, I became the his one offspring that made, <laughs> music
0: and was it drums that you were drawn to immediately or did was it piano or guitar
1: well i started off on the trombone
0: oh that's pretty there was a
1: piano in the house i plonked on that um there was a guitar in the house i plonked on that but the drums
0: don't all little boys love a drum kit
1: (laughs) wow especially well the, the operative word there being little because i was a late bloomer i was a little scrawny little uh runt of the litter oh And uh, one day I banged on a drummer. Now I'm an 800-pound silverback motherfucker swinging (laughs) through the trees. God damn it. Um, I might be a little pipsqueak, but listen to this. Bang, bang, bang.
0: And drove everybody uh, insane, I would think.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) At that age. Which is what I've been doing ever since. (laughs) Well, Well, there was another moment, actually. There was actually two moments which set me on this path. Um... One of them was Janet McRoberts, who, when I played my first gig at the American Embassy Beach Club, and we also played the British Embassy Beach Club, I'm there playing, I think, uh, a kink song, and um, there in front of me is Janet McRoberts, all 15. I'm 12, Mm -hmm. and she's 15. Wow. (laughs) And for a 12-year-old runt of the litter, a 15-year-old goddess (laughs) dancing to my groove... That is some empowering stuff that I am, you know, because music does something that no other art does. You know, plays, books, Shakespeare. Shakespeare does not usurp motor control of your body. You look at a fancy painting, Rembrandt does not force your hips to move. Only music will actually induce you involuntarily to thrust your pudenda in public. (laughs) In An overt sexual display. <laughs> Only music does that. It's trash. Now, if you are if you are twelve, and there is a fifteen-year-old, and you can you know what the difference between a twelve-year-old and a fifteen-year-old is, particularly with the girls, um, uh, that's quite inspiring. But then you know, so I thought that was it. Okay, the drums. I bang on these drums. It turns me into a you know a, a bigger entity
0: so we have to thank her yeah. for making l- letting us have you as one of the greatest drummers ever so we have to go back and find her and thank her
1: <laughs> yes well there was another moment too for which we can thank wells cathedral in somerset and uh, our school had its christmas thing at wells cathedral and i was in the band the school orchestra but i only played one song which was dum 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 whatever it's called drummer boy or drummer something, and because I was twitchy, nervous, fidgety, I was too noisy. So Mr. Fox, Copeland, go there, and he sent me to the other half of the cathedral. And the other half of the cathedral is like an entire cathedral. Wells Cathedral is actually two cathedrals stuck back to back, and so. Down one end is 1,000 voices of parents, teachers, and students raised in song in these beautiful Christmas carols with a choir and everything and huge organ and everything. The one wing of the cross is the orchestra. The other entire part of the church is just me (laughs) with all that music going on, floodlit through the stained glass windows from outside, and this music coming through of all these—that that fried my little fifteen-year-old brain, and it, that left a mark. And I then bet. come the moment when I was allowed back into the into the uh, proceedings, <laughs> and there I am. And they sing their song, and the echoes are dying away, and the flowers, and the—you know—it's just beautiful. It's just aesthetically pleasing. You know, I'm not very religious, but that's some very potent mojo. Um, and it's my moment, and Mr. Fox looks at me, and and it's my moment, and I go rum dum 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 dum, and my, right there I am the helmsman on this mighty ship of beauty <laughs> and song, and right there I real—it's not just about Jan McRoberts. This is some deep, deep stuff, to which my life is obviously going to be devoted.
0: I say
1: that's when you knew this is what I'm going to do, right? Yeah. Amazing. Well, it, I was, uh, you know. Uh, it came and got me, you know. Various times I, I, I was going to be a journalist in college. I started a magazine. I, you know, I was a roadie, DJ, everything. But that music just kept pulling me back.
0: Hello, everyone. Twiggy here. You all know how much I love things that are chic yet practical. Today I want to tell you about my latest find, Sarah Harran handbags, particularly the Jasmine crossbody handbag in pink Mockrock. This handbag is really great, it's made from a delightful pink Mockrock leather and you can tell that each piece is crafted with so much care. When you open it up you're greeted by a soft pink interior with two handy pockets to keep your bits and bobs in place. It's also very versatile. You can wear it across your body or sling it over your shoulder. Sarah Haron has many different styles and colours of handbags to suit your personal taste. So, why not treat yourself to a Sarah Haron bag? My bag and more gorgeous ones are on their website, SarahHaron.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-H-A-R-A-N.com. These bags are more than just accessories. They are your trusty sidekicks for every moment. Dive into the world of Sarah Haron handbags where style meets everyday life. And here's the cherry on top. Visit the Sarah Haron website now where you will receive an exclusive offer of 20% off your first bag. And not only that, you will also get three accessories absolutely free so you can start styling your bag right away. Just enter the code TWT, that's TWT, at the checkout to receive this incredible offer. So how how did you meet Sting and Andy? And how did the police form? You've got, I, I, we've got you up to the church in Wells, so then there must have
1: been... <laughs> well, I was, I, my brother Miles yeah. and my brother Ian were both industry people. Um, when Ian... My brother Miles started a music company, managed bands such as Caravan, Wishbone Ash, oh, okay. uh, Renaissance, and so on. And uh, Climax Blues Band, you know. And my brother Ian, when he came back from Vietnam, got on the phone as an agent. And with that American accent, he was booking, you know, with that American jive talk, he could <laughs> sell anything. And uh, he was a great eight. So I had two brothers who were in the industry and as a kid, I was roadieing for Wishbone Ash, oh okay, uh, and other groups, and so I learned how bands work. And, and actually, I, I uh, became, you know, rose to the lofty heights of tour manager. Wow! I uh, tour managed Joan Armatrading, uh, Renaissance, and so on.
0: So, what period is this? Is this like the sixties? mid seventies, early seventies. Mid seventies, okay.
1: And at that point, uh, I started to tour manager a band called Curved Air, uh, and ended up
0: being in as it. the drummer in
1: Curved Air. <laughs> being in the band, so I'm in this prog rock band. I was the last rat to jump aboard the sinking ship. (laughs) Uh, They had had all of their hits long before I joined, uh, and I was just a late comer to this glory. But it was a real band with a real record company and a real truck with real roadies and real lights, Uh, and now I just had to bang drums instead of carry around a briefcase. And then I think it was either Paul Cook, or one of the Sex Pistols used the F-bomb on national TV. Oh, yeah. I believe the word known, we'll just use a euphemism uh, and call it fuck. <laughs> um, which, he, uh, which he said on, a, on, on national Amer- TV. On
0: American TV?
1: No, British oh, national in, television. In
0: Britain? And that's Britain. what
1: caused the punk revolution. The The, the tabloids went berserk. Oh, my with God. glorious <laughs> outrage. And thus were the Sex Pistols and punk unleashed upon the world. And... <laughs> It was a whole new scene, <laughs> and uh, my epiphany came when we were my brother, the agent, was throwing a party for one of his clients, Al Stewart, oh, yeah. uh, Year of the Cat. Remember that? Yeah, sure. Um, and so, so all of his sophisto friends were there, you know, all dancing suavely in their velvet bell bottoms and and so on. And then uh, Sonia and I got back from a, a gig up in Leeds or Leicester or somewhere like that at two o'clock in the morning, and the party is just raging and we can hear the bedlam that we were in a squat in Mayfair at the time, and um, (laughs) long story, which is in my book, uh, (laughs) and uh, we can hear the revelry from blocks away in slumbering Mayfair, and we run up the stairs, we get to this penthouse apartment where the bedlam is swinging from the chandeliers, and they're the wildest looking crew in there, and music like, what the heck's going on here? We were supposed to be dancing suavely to like average white band. But there was this noise and these kids and these, these youngsters had like short hair, not nice long hair, like nice people. They had short <laughs> spiky hair and they were wearing suits which were all misshaped and slit up and messed up. And it was sort of like, you know, every hippie's nightmare is the man, <laughs> you know? And it was like the, the man had come back stoned on high on sniffing glue uh, and and like jumping this vertical dance motion, which later became called pogoing, oh, okay. and this wild party. <laughs> and all of Al Stewart's friends are all outraged by this. Uh, all the are pushed to the side, and this, this mob heaving, you know, s- jumping up and down. <laughs> and meanwhile, Miles, my brother Miles and my brother Ian and I, who are, everybody in the music industry is looking for the next big thing. This is clearly it. And we were both inspired by, and it, I, by the way, I'm in the cusp. I was too young to be a real hippie. I was born in 1952. Um, and so the hippie thing was long spent by the time I came on. It was sort of rancid, old, and I w- we were swirling in the suds on the back of that wave. Here was something fresh, new, and it was going to tear down the walls. And it was happening right before our eyes. And so the next day... I started looking for some musicians um, of the punk persuasion uh, to start a DIY band. And that was a cool thing about punk. It was very DIY. Uh, Curved Air had a record company, uh, roadies, a corporate structure, if you like, Mm -hmm. which was all nothing to do with what we're supposed to be here for. But the punk thing was all DIY. You could do it yourself. So I did it myself. I came up with a name. I wrote a manifesto. And I needed a... (laughs) It had to be a three-piece band I won't, and, and either the guitarist or the bass player had to be able to sing uh, since I'm breathing too hard, pounding stuff at the back of the stage. So I found this guitarist who was Corsican, hardly spoke English, let alone sing, but he had the right dark glasses and the correct uh, leather jacket and uh, looked and felt the part. And, uh, <laughs> so you- but I need, that needs the bass player's got to sing. And usually with bass players, the bass player needs to either He needs to have an amp, he either needs to have a a truck or a garage for the band to rehearse in or find a bass player whose father does have a truck. (laughs) Uh, But I'd seen this guy up in Newcastle all on tour with with curved air, playing in this jazz band who could sing and play bass and did have rather a handsome amp. Uh, Great, qualified. But there was one more factor, as I'm fond of saying, which was this golden shaft of celestial light descending from the heavens and alighting upon his magnificent brow. This guy just had charisma out to here. I mean, wow. That guy is a walking, talking, singing meal ticket. And so I got his number. Well, actually, I didn't get his number. A few weeks later, I called up the journalist who had taken us to, to you know, who was that guy, that bass player, Sting?
0: Was he called Sting then?
1: Oh, Yeah. Because he wasn't—he uh, wasn't
0: born Sting like I wasn't born Twiggy. I, I've had this conversation with Sting about our our ridiculous names.
1: The the only person who calls him uh, Gordon is Trudy.
0: Oh, does she? That's interesting. I, I mean, I we know them, but not
1: when sports. he's on the naughty step. <laughs> uh, Gordon, <laughs> even I jump when. When Trudy Trudy goes there, even I jump.
0: Oh, okay. No, we just had a mad night, or years ago. I think Lee, my husband, he was on Broadway doing something. And John Schlesinger, the the lovely director, who's not with us anymore, he had a, a dinner. And I think Sting was doing Threepney Opera. On Broadway at the same time? Oh, yeah, that's And, right. and John Sessinger invited us after theatre to go to his place. And, we, and and Sting and I had this mad conversation about our names. <laughs> yes. And he told me why he was called Sting, and I told him why Something I was Something to do with a
1: jumper. Oh, well. Um, his is a jumper. Sure mine, you,
0: fr- mine was to do with my legs.
1: <laughs> right,
0: okay. <laughs> so, anyway, that was our our kind of... Meeting moment. Well, I've, I've
1: had to make do with the name my mum gave me. Which is a nice Scottish name.
0: It's a very good Scottish name. Oh, sorry about yes. the accent. Can't do that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I used to have all the. I used to have all the English accents, by the way. Did you? I could do Brum. I could do Newcastle. I could do a couple of different versions of London. I could do Oik. I could do Posh because I went to a boarding school. Uh, but oh But now, yeah. after I've been living in in California for twenty years. They all sound like Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, that was the worst cut. What, Mike? <laughs> what? How about that? And, Mike,
1: my... you don't want to hear that. You don't want to, no, hear, I that. Don't all want over, to hear all that over at England, all over England. People are listening to your show, going, oh, come on, cut it out."
0: Talking about England, and we haven't mentioned it. Are you? Are you a tea drinker?
1: I am. I am.
0: What is your poison? What do you like?
1: Uh, I am um, PG Tips uh, or typhoon. Uh Fiona's on PG, I'm on Typhoo. Uh, except that recently in, on a trip to India, I discovered uh, Masala Chai. Where they make the tea. Well, they make the tea. Imagine mm-hmm. you've got a pot and you put your water in and your tea and the milk and a couple of other spices as well. And you boil the whole thing and you pour it out of the pot already with the milk and sugar and oh. some other weird stuff in there and it's absolutely intoxicating it is a cup of tea with a kick it's been and i i i <laughs> you know i've tried to find the nearest thing i can get to it here in los angeles masala chai and the your indian and uh asian listeners know exactly what i'm talking about it is a superior form of tea
0: i bet you can get it in london cuz oh,
1: there's so many good
0: indian restaurants yeah. I shall try one next time I go and have my Indian meal. So anyway, so you saw Sting, thought he's amazing, and he he should be in the band. And he's got a great he's got a great amp.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's got an amp. He's got his own amp. Uh, oh, wow! And uh, so I call up the journalist and say, you know, talking about hey, there's this new thing going on down in London. And, you know, it's really cool. It's uh, pubs are busting, It's called it's called punk. It's little little little, and the temperature drops thirty degrees. And he wouldn't give me his number. Oh no, you don't. You're not going to destroy our great art band up here in Newcastle and take him down to the pit, the the Viper's Nest of of Hades in London. <laughs> no way, Jose. Um, and so I hung up, kind of disappointed. And I walked around the room in tight circles, going. <laughs> and then I came up with a much more persuasive argument for Phil Sutcliffe, the journalist, which. Went along the lines of, give me his fucking number, asshole! (laughs) But he didn't pick up. His girlfriend did. Oh, okay. And, uh, oh, sorry, Phil's not here. Um, Hi, it's Stuart Coben from Curved Air. Curved Air? Oh, I love Curved Air, and so does Phil. Is there anything I can do? Yeah, that bass player in Last Exit, you know. uh, Oh, Sting. Yeah, have you got his telephone? Hang on a tick. Then I can hear her walking away to get Phil's phone book and walking back up and pretty soon. Uh... 432-9187. 4329187 by the way you can call that number and get sting right now if you like <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and uh so 1 minute later that voice is on the other end of the line that voice with which we are all now so familiar very, very and familiar. uh and after my initial thing which was uh look I'm calling from London uh I'm talking about you yourself and not your band uh and uh, two fateful words keep talking. And now, first of all, that meant that he is a free agent. Cool. Uh, second of all, that's what I had to do for the next two years: is keep talking, and filling, you know, grandiose schemes, convincing certitude. Uh, it's all happening. I'm on the phone booking shows and and uh, taking care of it. It's, it's all going on. It's all going on. I had to keep talking um, because for the first. Two years, not only did we not have any of the songs, we didn't have Every Breath You Take. We didn't have Message in a Bottle. We didn't have any of the, the, We had all who my crap.
0: Prop- who, who came
1: up with Police? Uh, I had that going in. Good, and, good. Um, uh, in good. fact, in my book, I've got the the, the page, because I kept all my diaries, all my notes, all wow, the receipts, all the truck, everything. And uh, I've, I've got the page with all the prospective band names. What's the book called? The book's called... Um, stuart copeland's police diaries brilliant okay it's just those three years of starvation (laughs) where we stuck together through thin and thinner with my crap songs which are basically just bass lines with yelling uh which was what the punk world demanded we were a fake punk band we were carpet baggers and soon spotted as such by the london critics so we were going nowhere for a year and not only Not only did we not have those big songs, because he hadn't started to write it, he didn't even know he could write those songs yet. Wow,
0: that's amazing.
1: Um, But we didn't have Andy Summers either. We had a guitarist who was really great at playing three chords that I showed him. Henry Padovani had great panache, great sunglasses, great leather jacket, (laughs) looked the part on stage, you know, completely the real deal. Did he
0: have a good amp, though? (laughs) He did. I'm glad to
1: hear He did. Qualified. (laughs) Um, (laughs) <laughs> but then one day we ran into Andy Summers in a session cuz Sting and I the minute you know he did come down to London then called me up from a phone booth downstairs. He said, "Oh, I'm downstairs." And I said, "Come on up." And we jammed and it was epic. It was am- this complete stranger. Wow. And yet we found the pocket. Epic, you know, rare. Um, you know, we raged unto the sky, into the stars. We, you know, we dug deep into the bowels of the earth. We thrust forward like a mighty invading army. We held back with poignance and subtlety. You know, it was just one of those epic jams, and we're looking at each other. I don't know who this guy is, but we're meant for each other. And so we stuck it out for a couple of years without any material, because Henry only knew three chords. And Sting did actually write a couple songs that were not the ones you've heard of, but they were a start, um, with what Henry could play. But then we ran into Andy Summers. And after a day in the studio with Andy, and we're driving home, and Sting's seething with musicality, and he'd he'd sublimated his musical instinct to be in this band of convenience with this loud, fast-talking American guy. (laughs) but he's seething. He said, "We got to get that guy." And I'm, and I'm humoring him. We're not going to get that guy. He's a triple scale guitarist, legendary. He's played with, you know. He's not going to, you know. Nice thought, and uh, and then st- stings on a tirade. and He's going, you know, you know, Henry. Henry's a crap guitarist. Yeah, I mean, you're a better guitarist than Henry. And and he carries on with a tirade. But I'm thinking, really, wow, this unexpected accolade. You know, stopped <laughs> me in my tracks. <laughs> wow. You're a better guitarist than Henry, and you're crap. <laughs> wow, really? Oh, that's. So you know, he sure knows how to flatter a guy. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, so, but it turned out that Andy had discovered us, and oh. we 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 finished the album with Mike Howlett, um, and we played a show. He was in a band called Gong, uh, who played a bridge in you know. So, in other words, we we kept running into Andy by virtue of Mike Hallett. okay, and. By the way, 20 years later, Mike Howlett realized, wait a minute, he wakes up in the middle of the night saying, wait a minute, my only solo album, which never got released, my backing band is The Police.
0: That's hysterical.
1: Uh, so he did call us up "Hey guys, do you mind if I release that album? I said, hey, look, you paid us 20 quid for the day. It's your record. Uh, that's, and so he did. It's called Police Academy, and it's kind of an interesting that, record, actually.
0: That's
1: really funny. Uh, so, so Andy one day calls up Sting, and then I ran into him a couple days later at Oxford Circus tube station and he pulls me over and says hey look you and that bass player you've got something but you need me in the band and i accept wow uh, <laughs> Brilliant. and i couldn't believe my ears uh, and i call you know i i had to kick the wheels a little bit and i'd say wow that's fantastic i can't believe it. we've been talking about the same thing and we couldn't believe that in a million years you'd ever you know wow um but you know you realize that we haven't got a record company I'm the record company. It's me on the phone selling boxes of 25 to record stores in Birmingham. You know, uh, that's the record company. Uh, we haven't got management. Once again, mm, you're looking at it. That's me. Um, road crew. Well, yeah, we do have road crew. That's you. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you on one end of the amp, and me on the other end, and that's 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 it. And, and you know, I basically, I was afraid he'd quit after two weeks, and we'd be screwed. But he stuck at it, and. It made no sense at all. And years later, I did ask Andy, what were you thinking? This fake punk band that was going nowhere, dead in the water. What were you thinking? And he said, I don't know, mate. Should've (laughs) stuck with Neil (laughs) Sedaka. Brilliant. So what was the first single?
0: Was it- Well, um the
1: first single was one that I wrote called Fallout. Um, And on one hand, uh, it didn't get any airplay. Of course, the BBC didn't play it. It it disappeared without a trace in one sense. But for us, it was a big hit. I'm on the phone with a Rolodex uh, calling record stores around England saying, I got a punk band. uh, What are they called? Police. Ah, That's kind of punky. Good. Uh, I got a picture sleeve. Yep, picture sleeve. Is it hostile? Yep. Is it punk? Yep. Send me a box. Wow. Uh, That's amazing. Because in in the record stores around the land, punks would come in and say, where's the punk? And they'd go over to the punk rack, and there's all these... Ra- they never heard them on the radio.
0: No, Radio percent. 1 wasn't playing they them. They weren't playing them. All, were they they? Had
1: to go on, all they had to go on was the sleeve. So not by virtue of the music and the idiotic song that I had written, but by the sleeve that I designed by cutting pictures out and using Letra set, Um <laughs> we sold a lot of records. And since there was no record company involved except for me, we actually saw money. Actual... We got paid, we, you know... More than if we'd had a record on That's the radio hysterical. with a record company. This is cash money. So when, I did, when
0: did you switch from the the punk thing? Because I, I never thought of police as punk.
1: You're too sophisticated. For that. <laughs> you are the, not down there at the, the Roxy Club.
0: No, no. The police band that I know and love is not punk, right? So when did you switch that and when did the first single come out that you know turned it all around for you guys
1: well when andy joined we became the police that you know okay and because he had such musicality such a wide vocal vocabulary uh, both with his playing and his instrument but also harmonically musically music theory he was very still is very very sophisticated musician and sting's ears just lit up and he started writing these songs roxanne uh, i say roxanne. Losing you. was
0: roxanne and, before every breath you take
1: yes oh, every okay. breath you take was on our last album okay roxanne was on our first album because
0: Roxanne, i think that's probably my first memory of police roxanne it's still one of my favorite songs it's brilliant Absolutely well it is brilliant. a heck of a
1: song yeah oh. uh and he uh he wrote that wandering the streets of paris um, wandered into the red light district oh, and wrote that song. And he didn't bring it to the song first. He was just, you know, playing it with it with Andy. And Andy just lit up. and Said, "Wow, that's fantastic. We should play it." But it's so not punk. And so they brought it to rehearsal. And I added a drum beat to it. I made it louder. <laughs> uh, turned the rhythm back to front. And that's the version that we have now. And right. so, uh, but it disappeared without a trace. It
0: didn't, um, did it? it was,
1: yeah, oh with the BBC God. wouldn't play it. It was about a prostitute. Oh, um, God. Which for us, we turned that into, banned, banned, <laughs> banned by the BBC. We are that outrageous. <laughs> they just didn't add us to the play. But then I made another song, which I recorded all the instruments myself, although I'm still denying it, under the name of Clark Kent. And I played all the bass, guitar, drums, and even sang. And now I'm a guy who doesn't even sing in the shower. <laughs> Uh, I am not a singer, but for some reason, Her Majesty, the BBC, added me to the Radio 1 playlist, equals hit, and there we are on Top of the Pops in masks. And that's so there so were, you know, and I didn't want to be a solo guy, I'm a band guy. Um, so so I asked my buddies, so there, our first time the three blonde heads were on national TV on Top of the Pops was as my Clark Kent backing band.
0: That's hysterical. Um, in
1: masks. <laughs> uh, this thing was in a gorilla mask. <laughs> and uh, I, I very rarely miss an opportunity to remind him of that. That is uh, so funny. Although he did get his revenge by writing 20 more hit songs. Yeah, uh, exactly. But that was the beginning. And, and as a result of Clark Kent's success, A&M, the record company, signed the police properly for an album deal, and the rest is history. And
0: the rest is history. Because <laughs> you, you, were you weren't together that long, right? I know you did a kind of comeback thing. It was, yeah, I know it wasn't that long. But then you also, and we've got to wrap up soon. I could, we could chat for hours. But um, you, you've done loads of film music, haven't you? And TV series, and I mean, yeah, you are yeah. a composer of that genre of fancy music. Shit. Fancy, fancy, didn't you do? Uh, what, didn't you do the music for Wall Street?
1: Yes, yeah. among others, yeah. Equalizer, Equalizer, for twenty years. After the police, for 20 years, I, was, I worked, you know, before the mast as a hired gun film composer who is not even an artist. He's a craftsman serving the director who is the artist. What well, do you uh, but,
0: prefer? Do you prefer composing or do you prefer playing live in a band? Or, uh, or, 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 they're almost they're very, unrelated. I'd say they're so different.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, being um, a
0: composer must be quite lonely, I would think. A bit like being a writer. Uh,
1: deliciously so. LAUGHTER uh, <laughs> no for 20 years i was a film composer which is basically um learn i learned all kinds of things as an employee i learned way more than i would ever have learned as an artist an artist goes where their instinct takes them yeah. an employee goes where the bosses sent him okay. and one of the things that i had an un you know uh, involuntary education is in the symphony orchestra i learned how to use use the orchestra as a result of being a film composer and I quit after 20 years. Um, I've retired from that. I haven't scored a film in 15 years or something. Uh, but I still do the same work uh, under the name of opera, which ah. uh, is a very different, it's the same work of using music to tell a story, but there's no Hollywood, there's no hurly burly, there's no commercial. It's like the business model is to lose money. Um, <laughs> you know, it's paid for by rich people or by governments or whatever. Uh, it's fine arts and so it's strictly a world of art for art's sake and making something really cool and amazing and that's what it, there's no executives in a in a corner suite uh saying that's not whatever it's yeah. completely art oh, uh the wonderful. pay is not quite as good right. but the art is way better and the light and so that's what i do now i write oh opera. how
0: wonderful that's wonderful how lovely! I, I, I didn't I didn't know that I, I I knew you did film music, but I didn't. Well, know you my, did my
1: wife has said, Fiona has said, darling, none of our friends like opera. <laughs> <laughs> I did drink the Kool Aid, and I am a fan of opera. But the opera that I write doesn't sound like Puccini.
0: Oh, okay. Well, we, we which just... is not
1: necessarily a good thing. I mean, <laughs> it, I wish it did. I wish it did sound like Puccini.
0: Before we say goodbye, you've got how many children? Four, seven. Six?
1: I have seven. seven children. Gosh. Seven children, five grandchildren, oh. and four grandpuppies.
0: Oh, grandpuppies. Oh. Are your grandchildren in California? Uh,
1: or are they all over the place? My seed is spread far and wide. Okay. Um, many in England. Um, oh, okay. I go to London and half the people there are my children.
0: Um, <laughs> and, oh,
1: that's lovely. Uh, they, you know, you probably know this—that grandchildren are fantastic. Oh and, my you know, goodness, as, we've as, got, as people say, how many of you got?
0: Between us, Lee's got Lee's got three with his son, and I've got two with my daughter, and oh. they're just—well, they're the love of my—you know—it's the new well, love know the of same, your lives. Don't you?
1: uh, what? if you'd known how much fun the grandkids were going to be, you would have had them first. <laughs>
0: That's brilliant. That's a brilliant son. I didn't know. Uh,
1: another way to put it is grandchildren are the reward for having children.
0: That's true, actually. That's absolutely true. Well, on that note, I think we'll, have, I mean, I could go on chatting to you for ages. You're brilliant. But I've Kobe won't speak to me if I go over an hour. <laughs>
1: Well, it's so nice to talk to you, Twiggy.
0: Thank you so much. And you. It's been an absolute joy. I haven't laughed so much for days. (laughs) You're brilliant. Okay. Thanks. Bye. I'll
1: see you next time a friend of ours has a wedding.
0: Okay, you're on. (laughs) I'm still laughing from talking to Stuart. I mean, he is... I mean, you know, we all know what a brilliant drummer he is and musician and composer, but, and I I, I have met him before and I did know he's very amusing, but I mean, he was hysterical today on good form, Stuart. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, I'm going to go off and have my dinner now. Okay, thanks for listening. Bye. If this is your first time listening to Tea with Twiggy, please do remember to tell your friends. You can also subscribe for free on your podcast app and listen to all my previous guests. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. You just heard a Stripped Media Production.